Well, um, this morning we're continuing to work through this narrative of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And as we've worked through our studies, we've uh, thought about Jesus and the woman at the well and the distance. And then we've thought about Jesus and the woman at the well um, and, and the gift that Jesus offers to her, the, the gift of living water. And then we thought last week about Jesus and the woman at the well and the progression as she comes closer to an understanding of the significance of who Jesus is. And this week, and then also next week, we're going to speak about Jesus and the woman at the well and worship. Worship. So that's uh, what will occupy our study on these next two Sundays, Lord willing. And as we start out our consideration of of, uh, these verses, we'll uh, frame our study in this way. Um, On the one hand, we can affirm that there are a lot of centers in our lives. So uh, if we think about this in the context of friendship, for example, the center of important friendships, the center of important personal relationships uh, is often something like a shared common interest. So you grow close to a person because you you have this uh, primary hub of relational growth that can happen around something that you like together. There's that center that exists of personal interest. Or if we think in the context of our working lives, uh, the center of our professional lives often revolves around a unique skill set that we have. So, so what's essential to our careers is the fact that we can be productive in a certain technical or scientific or artistic kind of way. Uh, there's that professional center that exists in our lives. And we can list lots of examples of, of, of centers in our lives, those things that are, that are very uh, central and, and core to different aspects of our existence. Um, and, and what's very center is important, and we want to affirm that in a lot of different situations, in a lot of different relationships, in the reality of, of who we are as people. Uh, what's at the center is important, and we can affirm that. However, as we study our Bibles, we realize that while our lives may be filled with many different things at the center of many different aspects of our lives, uh, ultimately, as we read the Scriptures, we discover that there is one ultimate center with regard to our humanity, And that center is a worshiping center. Humanity exists fundamentally in a worshiping kind of way. Uh, C.S. Lewis underpins this point when he makes a comment in his book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. He makes this comment. He says, The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians. The world rings with praise. At the very center of our lives, at the very center of all centers, is this most fundamental root reality of what it means to be uh, human, and that is this notion that we're made to be worshipers. Now, just in saying that, it helps to clarify what we mean by the term worship, especially when we're using it in its most biblically defined way. Now, even when we talk about worship in the context of our, of our Christian faith, often, often we, can, we can subcategorize it in our minds. So you have that, that notion, sometimes you go into a church and there's a, there's a worship pastor. 
who we all understand would, would lead the singing on Sunday mornings. But that's always kind of an interesting title because, of course, when we come together on Sunday mornings while singing is a part of worship, everything we do on Sunday mornings is a part of worship, isn't it? We're coming under the Word of God right now, submitting our hearts to the Scriptures. That's an act of worship. We'll think about the Lord's Supper, the significance of Christ and His sacrifice. That's an act of worship. Even you coming and interacting with one another in an encouraging and friend-developing way is an act of worship before God. So, so the word worship itself can sometimes get particularized even within the context of our Christian framework, um, but we know that worship is much bigger than that kind of particularization we can, we, we can affect upon the word. Um, so as we think about worship with our Bibles open, we can know, for example, that worship includes our affections, right? The, the object of our worship is revealed by what we love the most. And worship isn't just revealed by our affections, but it's revealed uh, by our allegiances, right? The, the object of our worship is made clear by what we are most unwaveringly committed to. It's our object of worship. And worship includes our confidence. So the object of our worship is revealed by what we're trusting in and hoping in the most. And worship includes our purpose. So the object of our worship is revealed as the, as the element that gives most meaning to our lives, so, so worship is this very big reality. That, that's why Scripture, for example, can speak of worship negatively, say, in the context of money. Remember how Jesus in Matthew 6 says this very explicitly, you can't serve, which is a worship word, you can't serve both God and money, or God and stuff, right? Um, simply because we have this, this notion that what is elevated to the highest place can be what ultimately uh, carries away our affections and allegiance and confidence and purpose. And we see that, uh, just money is an easy example, but obviously if I love money deeply, it's the object of my worship. If I pursue it as the main uh, source of, of concern in my life, if, that, if that's my main objective, it has my allegiance. If I trust that if I just have enough money, everything will be okay, there's my confidence. And of course, if my purpose is defined by material net worth, money becomes the object of my worship as well. So, so we see how the reality of worship is that at its very is, is that it is at, it, at the very center of what it means for us to be human and what we what we worship defines and affects everything about our lives. Which is what the Apostle Paul brings up when he's speaking about our human condition in Romans chapter 1, doesn't he? So, so Paul in Romans 1 is making clear that we exist in this fallen condition as creatures under the God who made us, and Paul cites disordered worship as our fundamental problem, our fundamental situation, where he says in Romans uh, 1 verse 25, he says, as humanity, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Okay, Paul, so what do you mean by that? Well, we worship and serve what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. So, so at the root of our human condition is a worship problem, because at the root of being human, we're made to be worshiping creatures, but, but we have directed the, the affections and allegiance and, and confidence and understanding of our source of purpose. We've oriented that in the wrong direction. That's, that's what it means to be lost in sin. We're disordered worshipers. Right? The Lord has created us to praise Him. The Lord has created us to live for Him and trust in Him, obey Him, rely upon Him. And we've turned away from that purpose and elevated other things. Um, so, so this is the center of our fallen reality as people uh, because it is the center of who we are as humanity. We've exchanged the truth of God for false worship. 
So we have situations where money is my hope or sex is my satisfaction, popular opinion is my solace, leisure is my restoration, my own opinion is my God. We're out of order as humans. And what, what is amazing is that while we're in a, a position of rebellion and situated in disordered worship, while we've put ourselves in this position under God as despising Him, what's amazing is that God so loved the world, He sent His only Son into the world not to condemn us, but to actually bring salvation to us. This is the good news of the gospel. But what, what happens is that through the grace that comes because of Jesus, what happens is that the saving kindness of God breaks into our lives, or to use John 3 language, by the Spirit of God we're born again. Our hearts are made new to see the glories of God and the, and the kingdom of His Son. And what happens is all of a sudden everything changes. All of a sudden, our categories of, of affection and allegiance and confidence and purpose, they all shift from being fixed upon what is not worthy. We have a shift in our worship away from what is not worthy to the one who is worthy. So the Spirit of God blows where He will. Remember how Jesus speaks about that in John 3. Then comes and renews our hearts. And as a result, the central worshiping reality of our life is altered. And instead of trusting in alternatives then to the living God, instead now, all of these things, our worship is directed to and sourced in the living God Himself. So, so the grace of God affects our hearts, and all of a sudden everything changes in this way. What was most high in my life before is quickly put in its proper place as the significance of who God is and, and what He's done for me compels me to say with my whole life now, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So, so even as we speak about this, as we, as we start today, I wonder if you, if you can see the outworking of that kind of worshiping center in your own life. We can reflect on this a bit autobiographically. There was a time when other things seemed like they should be the main thing, the center thing for me in my life. There was a time like that. But then uh, one day those other things just seemed to fade, or maybe it was part of a process, but those things faded, and the truth and, and love and majesty and sovereignty and holiness and justice of God was set upon my heart in such a profound way uh, that the reality of Jesus as my Savior King became so grand, and everything just faded, e everything changed. We recognize how that happens for us. And as we've worked through this narrative of the woman at the well, we see that this is exactly what's happening to her. She, she's moved from totally dismissing Jesus as a, as a nobody wandering stranger to be brushed off. She's moved to see the, the cleansing offer of eternal life more clearly. She's moved to see the need she has for grace more seriously. And she started to perceive who Jesus is more accurately. Remember last time, I see that you're a prophet. She goes from thinking this guy has no bucket to seeing that Jesus is a prophet. There's something unique in her own process here. And so in verse 20, we find her really asking the question we all ask when our hearts are renewed by grace and repentance becomes a pleasing theme to us. She asks the question that we all ultimately ask as we're renewed by God, how shall I worship? How shall I respond to the undeserved grace given to me by God, this cleansing stream that's come, how do I live a life where I'm not trusting in alternatives to bring me peace and rest, but instead I'm trusting in the one who promises cleansing power and eternal life to me? How do, how do I live a life reflecting that the Lord is now my light and salvation? He is the worthy one. He's the one I want my life to be turned toward. So how shall I then worship? 
Effectively, that's the question uh, this, this uh, woman brings to Jesus in verse 20 there, where the woman says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. This is a how shall I then worship question. Uh, this woman is quickened in her heart to turn from her sin, to trust in God. This is evident clearly in the coming verses when she's witnessing to her own town about Jesus, and they're all uh, many are coming to believe in Jesus. So this woman's own heart has been quickened, and her response is a, a desire to relate to God properly. How shall I worship? And we spent a little time last week on the, on the background, on underpinning the, the practicality and even the geography of the woman's question here. If you remember, the Samaritans had long disagreed with the Jewish perspective on worship location. Uh, we talked last week about how the Samaritans only held that the first five books of the Bible were Scripture. So the books of Moses are, are, the, are the only Scripture. So, so they didn't hold to the truth that came later under David and Solomon's rule that the place to worship God was the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans held that the worship of God was to take place on Mount Gerizim. And that's because that location was the first place that, Moses, or that uh, Abraham built an altar in Genesis chapter 12 when he first comes into the land that would be promised to him. So they, uh, they're studying that and they figure, well, if that's the first place Abraham built an altar, that's where, that's where the Lord is to be worshipped. And so there was this disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans. Is it Mount Zion, the hill within Jerusalem, or is it Mount Gerizim, where worship is to take place? So when we remember that background for verse 20, the woman is functionally asking the question of a repentant person. Jesus has spoken to her about cleansing grace from God. He's confronted her about her sin, and now she's desiring to worship properly. And probably in her mind, she's thinking in Exodus and Leviticus categories and wondering where she should make a proper sacrifice for her sin as she repents of her lifestyle of sin and turns back to God. So where, where do I go now, Jesus, to, to offer right sacrifices? How do I worship in response to this cleansing from God that I, that I long for? And so in verse 21 and on, Jesus offers the answer. And it's not the answer we would have expected. Uh, but it is, of course, a very helpful answer as we think through what it looks like to live a life of worship because Jesus saves us. Now, in these verses, we, we certainly don't have everything we can say about worship from the Bible. But in these verses, we have very important truths about worship as they pertain to a life that's properly responding to the purifying grace that's ours in Christ. So how do we worship? Um, so so that, that's, a, that's a bit of a long introduction, but that sense the tone for what's here. Jesus and the woman at the well and worship. And, and so we're going to get into the text. And again, we're just going to make it through verse 22 this morning. Uh, but we'll think about those two verses under the headings first of place and then of source. That's how far we'll get today. Uh, next week, we'll get through nature and expectation as we round out uh, through verse 26. Um, but Jesus and the woman at the well and worship. We'll start in verse 21, where Jesus says something uh, about place. Place. So, in fact, let me just read verse 21 again for us. Uh, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So, the woman has asked this location question back in verse 20. Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion, which is the hill located in Jerusalem. So, so, so this is the question. Is it this mountain or that mountain for worship? And Jesus has answered her question by saying no. no. Right? Should worship take place here or there? And Jesus says no, neither. 
which doesn't sound like much of an answer, especially since we know that while the Samaritans didn't acknowledge the full Hebrew Bible, the Jewish people did acknowledge the full Old Testament. Jesus himself acknowledged the full Old Testament as God's truth. And in that revelation, it is clear that the temple on the hill of Zion in Jerusalem is the revealed place God calls his people to worship him. So we think of the psalmist crying out to God in places like Psalm 48, where he says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Where? In the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Pretty clear geographical marker in that psalm. Mount Zion in Jerusalem is where worship took place. Or we have Isaiah 24, where the prophet says, The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. So where, where does God make the presence of His glory known? Well, in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That's where the Lord's people meet His presence. So, so which mountain is it? Jesus, is it Mount Gerizim, as believed by the Samaritans, or is it Jerusalem? Our answer would have been, oh, I know this one. It's Jerusalem. Instead, Jesus says, an hour is coming when you, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So at first this seems like a non-answer. It, it might even seem like a biblically confused answer. But we know, of course, that it's not a non-answer and it's not a confused answer. Instead, it's actually a profoundly important answer as we think about the way God relates to His people through redemptive history and the climactic work that Christ Himself has come to do. And, and part of the profound significance of what Jesus says here is found in this expression, an hour. An hour is coming. Jesus says, and then actually if you look down to verse 23, which we won't get into much today, but in verse 23, the expression is repeated again, an hour is coming and has now come. Okay, so, so we need to think about this for a moment. Um, as we study the Gospel of John, we're becoming very familiar with the fact that John chooses certain words or phrases and infuses them with extra potency. We're getting used to the way John writes along those lines. So we've had that with the term world. We've talked about that a number of times. We recently actually saw how John uses this word must or has to or have to. Uh, we saw it when Jesus had to travel through Samaria earlier in this section. But John uses that phraseology to connect to the unique purpose of Jesus' cross-centered mission throughout his gospel. Um, so we have these, these common expressions and phrases that John uses, but he loads them with meaning and repeats them throughout his writing. Um, and it's meaning, it's meaning that might not have been all that loaded for, for the immediate interaction that Jesus was having, uh, though no doubt things would become clearer to the individuals as time went on, uh, but, but these things are very loaded with meaning intentionally for us as the reader. And, and this expression, an hour or the hour, is another one of those loaded terms. Because in John's gospel, uh, this term is primarily used to refer to the time of Jesus' cross and resurrection and exaltation, it's used to direct our attention, if we can be succinct with this, to the events and effects of the passion. When John talks about hour, that's what he's pointing to. Something about the events and the effects of the passion narrative. So, for example, we read in chapter 16 that Jesus is talking to His disciples about their response to His arrest and crucifixion. And He says, an hour is coming when you will leave me, when you will abandon me. Speaking to the fact his disciples are all gonna are all gonna betray him when he when he's they're all gonna run away when he's on the cross, or if you remember even back in chapter two in that water into wine incident when Jesus' mother is asking him to turn water into wine, his response is, "My hour has not yet come." 
So, so the time for the fullness of my revealed mission is not yet, Jesus is saying to her. Chapter 7 has the same thing, where we read how leaders were seeking to arrest Jesus, but then John tells us that no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. So this hour language is another example of, of loaded language all throughout John's gospel. And while the woman at the well obviously wouldn't have fully understood the implication of what this, well, what this meant, at least she wouldn't yet, not least of all because they're having a conversation in Aramaic and John is giving this to us in Greek. John's crafting this so we understand things more clearly. Uh, John intends that we would think this out well in terms of Jesus' teaching here with the whole truth of the gospel in front of us in these pages. So you see, what Jesus is saying then, if we come back to this, is that, is that in the beginning of his answer to this woman's question about how she should then worship, uh, when he's speaking to her about the reality of true worship, the question of physical location, Jesus is saying, is an obsolete question. It's going to be an obsolete question. Jesus is saying that the former ways of worshiping in Jerusalem on the holy mountain, for that matter, that the former ways of worshiping God where the unique manifestation of God's presence is attached to a physical and geographical and sacrificial location, those days are going to be obsolete. Why? Well, because an hour is coming, and in fact is, is already here in a sense, he says in verse 23, so, so the place of worship according to the old order of God's dealings with His people, is going to be replaced by the full expression of the location of worship, not attached to a place, but attached to the person of Jesus Himself. So in Christ's hour, so in the ministry of Christ on the cross, He offered the final sacrifice for our sin. There is no need for an altar in Jerusalem where the blood of bulls and goats would be shed. Jesus is the sufficient final sacrifice, paying the redemption price for sin of those who will trust in Him. The hour comes where the sacrifice has been fulfilled. No more need for altars in Jerusalem. And in Christ's hour, He proved not only to be our sacrifice, but He opened up the way for the presence of God to dwell, not in a temple made with hands, but now the presence of God dwells in us. We've been purified by the power of the cross, and as a result, the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, now comes and indwells us as believers. So much so that, that Paul actually brings up that extraordinary theological truth to speak about sexual purity to the Corinthian believers. You remember that? Where he says, don't you know? No, he says that a whole bunch of times, which is almost funny at, at, at a certain level. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Paul gets to the point where he says, don't you know that your body is a what? The temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. Honor God with your body. You're where God dwells now, purified by Christ. Right? So, so there's no longer the need for a temple with a holy of holies separating sinful people from a perfectly holy God. No, in Christ we're purified and God now dwells in us. Jesus is the better priest who's granted us this purity and access to God the Father. No curtains needed, no holy of holies, uh, none of those things. And all that... Because the place for sacrifice to God and the provision for the presence of God has been made obsolete by Jesus who came. And in his hour, he fulfilled all the realities that that former system was pointing forward to. Which is why Jesus can refer to himself as a temple of God. Remember how he did that earlier in the cleansing of the temple? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Referencing his resurrection. So, so he's the way we meet with God now. 
It's because of His sacrifice. It's because of His purifying us and sending the Spirit of God to dwell in us. It's because of His hour that the place of worship is not our concern, but the person of worship who purifies us and opens access to God for us. He's the one who now holds our affection. So our worship location is now not geographical, but it's Christological, located in the person of Christ. It's centered on the person of Christ and what He's done. That's why, that's why we can meet at a Portland public middle school for crying out loud and exercise worship. It's not because the place is pure. It's because we as the people of Christ have been made pure by Him and now can offer the totality of our lives to the living God as an act of praise empowered by the very presence of God in our hearts and in our fellowship. It's because of Christ and His hour. So like this woman, if if we're trusting in Jesus, we have experienced the cleansing streams of living water. Like this woman at the well, we've, we've known the, the reality of the depths of our sin, which would alienate us from God, but we've known the promise of eternal life instead of judgment as we yield to God and His grace. And so what do we do? Well, we worship. And where do we worship? Well, the answer is that's the wrong question. There's no longer a fixed place where the presence of God's glory dwells because with Christ, it's not a place question, it's a person question. He, Jesus, has so cleansed us that as we gather together for worship on Sunday, even in a pagan edifice such as this place, the Lord is pleased with our praises. Or as we engage in our daily labors out in the world, working as unto the Lord, the Lord is pleased with our life offered to Him in worship. Or as we sit in our classrooms, or as we meet with our friends, or as we're alone in our homes. We're constantly in a place of purified communion with the living God, whose Spirit now dwells in us. And so whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, as Paul says, we do all to the glory of God. It's not about place. It's about the fact that we have been purified by the person of Christ to live a life of praise. Now, that's not to say we can shirk certain elements of worship. Of course, we could take this and go too far with this. You know, if, if I decide on Sunday morning, you know, I think I'll go worship God in nature uh, because after all, the Spirit of God is within me and, and I'm going to go up in, into the mountains in nature instead of gathering with the people of God on the Lord's day. Well, that becomes a worship problem and we're going to talk about that next week when we talk about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. Right? The Lord who made us and calls us to worship Him is the Lord who prescribes how He would like to be honored through Christ. So, so there's that whole piece. But what Jesus begins making clear here is that when it comes to worship, we're not constrained by a prescribed location because Jesus and His work are the locus. Jesus and His work is the center of what makes true worship possible everywhere, all the time. So, we're trusting in Jesus, and we we just ask ourselves this question, do I live a life of praise? Is that something that's in my mind as more of a constant? Right? That, that is a worship-filled life something more than, than just a Sunday morning thing while the songs are being played? Is it, is it an all-the-time thing no matter our location? We, we can prayerfully say things like as we, as we, even as we get ready for a Monday morning, Lord Jesus, may I be a worshiping presence with my family as I begin this new week that you created and called me to live out your goodness in. We just recognize that the, t- t- the totality of life now is, is a life of worship for us. And so we ask ourselves a question, do, do I live that way? Of course, we live that way on Sunday morning as we come in gathered as we should, as we're commanded to do. Do I live that way when I go out, when I'm alone, when I'm with others, when I'm with unbelievers? Am I seeking to exalt the name of the Lord? 
So in verse 21, Jesus tells us something about place. We're not concerned with worship geographically. We're concerned with worship Christologically, right? based on the hour, based on the events and effects of Jesus' work. Place. Uh, so first we have that, that uh, something there about place. And then secondly, and lastly for today, uh, we can put together verses 21 and 22 and, and see that Jesus also tells us something about source, the source of our worship. Um, so just look at 21 and 22 together. In fact, I'll, I'll read those again for us. So we have 21, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. Something there about source. Um, now, now, you probably notice immediately here that Jesus does provide a corrective to some of the thinking that's been going on uh, in, in the Samaritan woman's framework with regard to history and religious practices. Because while Samaritans highly valued their heritage, they counted themselves as offspring of Jacob, just as the Jews would have, uh, Jesus says that the Samaritans worship what they do not know. Uh, remember, theologically, they, they only hold to the first five books of the Bible. They're missing central, huge aspects of God's revealed salvation to them. So, so, so Jesus gives this corrective here. Jesus says, Jews worship what they know, so they have the fuller revelation of God's plan because they have the whole Old Testament, right? Samaritans worship what they don't know. Samaritans are, are disconnected at a level from the fullness of God's revelation up to this point in redemptive history. And then Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. So, so the promise of God to restore and forgive, to offer the eternal life hope of living water, that cleansing stream, the source of that life and promise comes not from the ethnic Samaritan line. The Samaritans, you remember, were an ethnic group uh, who were made up of, of, of Assyrians who intermarried with Jews uh, during the exile back in the 8th century. Uh, so Assyrians and Jews, the Jews who were left and not carried off, they intermarried. That's where the Samaritan group came from. Uh, so Jesus is saying that the source of life and promise comes not from the ethnic Samaritan line, uh, but the source of living water, this salvation promise, is from the Jewish people. Uh, which, of course, we understand as we read our, our whole Testament, recognizing that the promise of God that started with Eve in the garden carried through Abraham and through David, all down the historical lineage of the tribe of Judah until the salvation of the Lord came in the Jewish person of Jesus. So, so on the one hand, this is, a, this is a corrective to the Samaritan woman who was wondering if Samaritans had a grasp on salvation truth in general or if the Jews were right. All this debate stuff going on. Um, now, the Jewish people, of course, in John's gospel are largely going to miss who Christ is, but the point remains, the historicity of redemptive revelation comes through the Jewish people, not the Samaritans, which actually does answer the question about the two mountains, if you go and apply that back. But the point being, the source of salvation is from the Jews, which on the one hand, could be quite a discouraging truth for the Samaritan woman. She may all of a sudden be spiraled into thinking that for all this living water that's been offered to me, maybe I really am not in a position to receive it. I'm, I'm removed from the Jewish people ethnically, right? The source of salvation is Jewish, and here I am so many, in so many ways, very far removed from that source. 
However, Jesus doesn't let her think that way. In fact, in fact, he's, he's very clear on the subject. Because while the, the source of salvation is located in Jesus' own coming as the promised one from a Jewish family line, while the source of salvation is set in all that way, the, the, the breadth of salvation reaches to all. And, and we get this truth in two ways. If we dip back into verse 21, read it together with 22, we might even have to say something about verse 23, but, but look at how this, this is framed in this section. Um, in fact, this is one of those places where the English translation doesn't quite maybe communicate the fullest of intent. But, but listen to this emphasis if I read 21 and 22 a little more woodenly. Okay, listen, listen to this. Verse 21, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you all will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You catch that, you all, the plural. Then verse 22, You all Samaritans worship what you all do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the, from the Jews. So, so we hear that in there. Right? When Jesus is speaking about the source of worship, He locates it within the Jewish people. Jesus is the Son, born of a Hebrew woman, to be the Savior of the world. Our Savior is Jewish. But the salvation that He brings and the worship that He ultimately calls for in response is for you all, even, even you Samaritans. You all Samaritans, you won't need to wor worry about worshiping on either one of those mountains. That, that's not where you all will worship. You, you see what Jesus is saying? He's including them in this category of consideration of what it means to worship properly. And, and to punctuate this reach of salvation in verse 21, Jesus says, you all Samaritans will worship the Father, neither on this mountain or here, as He reorients them. In other words, while the, the source of salvation is from the Jews, the reach of salvation is to bring those people who are otherwise removed from the Jewish people. The, the reach of salvation brings all worshipers to God, not in, in a cold, separated position, but in a position as His children. You will all be worshiping the Father in, later in spirit and in truth in a proper way. This is, this is not very typical language to speak of God as Father in this way in, in the Gospels as much. Paul is the one who really develops this notion of, of relationship to God as his children. When, when Jesus speaks to God the Father in the Gospels, not every time, but most times, it's in direct reference to his own relationship to God the Father. But, but here you see how broad it is. Later he'll say true worshipers aren't, aren't just... Uh, aren't just Jews, but they're those who worship our Father in spirit and truth. So, so all who are true worshipers, cleansed by the streams of living water, they're going to rest in this promised salvation from uh, God the Son, who in effect makes us all children of God, which has huge implications for us. Because this means that we do not come to worship a God who is distanced and uncaring, just waiting for us to slip up. But instead, we worship the one who cares for us as children with a perfect love that we can never be separated from and a love that's larger than we can understand, a father who desires to give good gifts to his children and who provides perfectly for all our needs. So, so salvation is sourced in the promise of a Jewish son being born. Jesus is the one who procures our salvation, purifies us for worship. But the reach of this salvation is such that everyone from adulterous Samaritans to people like, like us can worship God as our Father. We are all His children now. In fact, in fact, this is something so important to, to remember, even as we think about the way the Bible puts this together, Paul and his writing, and I think it was in, was it in our member class when we were talking about this a little bit, but we read the Bible and we recognize that Paul regularly uses the word sons to refer to us as, as children of God. 
And so some translations like to get a little frisky with that and make sure they put in sons and daughters just so everybody feels included. But we have to recognize that, first of all, the female reference is there for us as God's people when we're called the bride, the church. So the Bible's plenty comfortable with that. But when Paul speaks to us about all being sons of God, the sons are the one who get the grand inheritance, aren't they, in this culture? So the fact that we're all sons of God is an extraordinary truth that Paul unpacks as we recognize what it is to be his children. We all have the full inheritance of God, and Paul's using language that's intended to emphasize that. So, so if we come back to, to worship categories as we think about God as our Father, we recognize these categories that we started with become extremely full and fulfilling as we have them in their, in their proper order. So those things like affection, allegiance, confidence, and purpose, which help us think about worship. The, the God who saved us, who we're otherwise so far from, He has proved Himself to be our Father, gathered us in as His children, so He has our affection. To Him we offer our love. There's worship, right? Or allegiance, the, the God who loved us so much as to send His Son Jesus to die for us and make us sons, give us the benefit of the firstborn, right? To Him we offer our unwavering commitment. There's the allegiance aspect of worship. Or confidence, the God who cares for us as a perfect father cares for his children. He's the one that we trust and hope in. He has our confidence. And of course, purpose. Right? The, the one who gives us new life and eternal life, he's the one we trust in through all the ups and downs and twists and turns of life as we know he will bring his good plans for us to pass. So all this ultimately leaves us worshiping as we meditate on the realities that Christ is conveying here. Salvation comes... And it's not just that my guilt is removed, but God Himself inhabits our hearts and He witnesses to us that we are His children and He is our Father and we're called not to just rest in that truth, but we're actually called to live the totality of our lives in light of that truth, recognizing what can tomorrow do to me? I'm God's child, I will be praising Him. What, what, what can hardship ultimately do to me? I belong to God as His child. We call Him Father. He calls us His children. And so we offer our lives to Him in intimate worship. Which is why in just a moment we're going to sing the last verse of, of one of these songs. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer His only Son? Who else invites me to call Him Father? Only a holy God. So we live our lives responding to grace in this posture of worship, And we're helped to think through that as we think uh, not only of a proper place, the location of worship is not geographical, but Christological. And we're also helped to think about that in relationship to source. Christ, who was born a Jew, is the source, but flowing from that source is a salvation that is open to all, even people like us. It's a glorious truth. And so we, and so we just check ourselves by this. Have other things moved into the highest place? Where's my confidence really been this week? Where's my affection really been this week? A passage like this renews us in the truth that God and our God and Father is the one who rightly deserves the fullness of our expressed worship, and we're renewed in that as we consider the truth that's here. Let's pray together. So, Father, we do ask that we'd be encouraged by this truth and that we would continue to be transformed in it as followers of Jesus. Uh, we are mindful of the fact that the hour of Christ is everything for us. And what He accomplished and the reality of what His work has done 
Uh, that means everything to us. Life is given to us because of that, and, and we want to respond to that in a life of worship. So help us to that end, even as we consider this truth this week and as we continue to next week as well. May we be renewed in this in a unique way and strengthened for the work you call us to of worshiping you in the totality of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.